why are we doing this series? Now, some of you are new tonight, uh, and maybe this is your first time here. I want to just welcome you if that's the case. And uh, many of you have been with us through this. I think we're on part five of this series entitled Good Times, Everything is Awesome. Um, our first ever sarcastically titled sermon series at Awaken, and I, I'm quite proud of that as well. So why are we doing this series? I, I wonder what answer comes to mind. I, I, I truly am curious what answer, you don't need to answer right now, but what answer comes to mind for you? Why are we in the middle of this series focusing so much on five verses in the middle of 2 Timothy? Perhaps the answer to that in your minds is quite different from your neighbor, the person sitting next to you. I think that is quite possible. This last week, I, I got an email, just such a gracious, kind email from a sister in Christ who, who was with us here a number of years ago. And she had to move from Columbus and has been following with us online um, through, the, through the pandemic and as we've been streaming our services. And uh, one, one of her wonderings, one of her wonderings is whether or not this series is motivated, kind of at a, at a, at a core level at least, motivated by politics. And uh, she'd felt there was just some, maybe somewhat of an elephant in the room during the messages these past five weeks uh, that perhaps they'd taken a turn. And honestly, I can understand why. I can understand why she feels that way. I can understand if, if you can relate to that and I suspect some of you here can relate to that. I understand why you might feel that way. We're, man, we're living through such a difficult time where human interaction is as difficult, if not more so, than it ever has been uh, in the course of our history. And there's so much happening at once. I've never seen so much uh, discord and difficulty and division and misunderstanding. Um, it is... Uh, it, it, it is a challenge. So uh, perhaps some of you guys have had similar wonderings, and I, I thought it might be helpful to just take a step back and share a, just a few motivations for this, for this series. Uh, this is, you know, mostly from, from my heart, and, and just why we talk about what we talk about during public worship, uh, at least as of, as of recently. First off, I want to say this, this series... This series is truly not meant to be some kind of backdoor go around to, to make or promote a political agenda. That is not what this series is about. That's not what it's supposed to be about. That's not what, uh, certainly not my like heart or intent. It really should only be taken as political to such a degree that, that your politics or, or whoever's politics intersect with kingdom values. That's what we're wanting to talk about during this series kingdom values, and the increasing movement that we should expect to see, not just in our culture, but around the world as followers of Christ that Jesus predicted, uh, the, the, the increasing opposition to kingdom values. Uh, at least that's the intent. That is the intent. Um, now, you may find this, <clears throat> I think some of you might find this a little bit hard to believe, but there has been uh, there's been some criticism over the the last few months that our messages have been just way too liberal, way too liberal, uh, just following the progressive agenda. And there's been criticism on the other side that uh, they've been just super super conservative. And, and that, that's not widespread. I mean, that's not from just tons and tons of people in the church. But I say that to just maybe bring light into how people are feeling about the words that they hear during this season. There's so much weight and context behind so many of the words that we hear, and it sometimes can be difficult. Uh, in fact, for me, over, over these last few years, I've been, and I think here I can use the word accused for both of these next two things, of being like a, a shill just a direct shill for Hillary Clinton and her campaign uh, in the 2016 election, and also of being like a full-fledged alt-right, um, just fundamentalist wacko. Uh, and I, yeah, I certainly hope that uh, most of you don't think either of those things are true, and I, I know that neither of those things are true. Um, we are free we are absolutely free to engage in politics. And I think to some level, we, we ought to, we should. 
We are not free, however, as followers of Christ for our worldview or our primary interests to be driven by a political party. We don't have that freedom. We're not ultimately followers of any, ultimately followers of any political ideology. I'm not saying we can't subscribe to a political ideology. I'm saying for all of us, we are ultimately, we cannot be followers ultimately of a political ideology as our foundation. We must be led by Jesus Christ through the Holy Spirit. This is our call from God. This is our, this is our intent. This is our intent. Um, there's, there's certainly, there is not perfection in that. There's so much room to grow, I think, for all of us in that, and certainly room to grow for our elder team. But that, that is our intent, to follow Jesus Christ, to be led by the, the Holy Spirit and following Jesus Christ in what we believe, in what we do, in how we feel, in what we talk about. Um, and, and I will say there are certain times as a pastor when things keep you up at night. There are certain seasons where that is, is more common than others. When you feel just a burden for the church, Paul, in, in his talk of all the sufferings that he went through for the sake of the gospel, being beaten and shipwrecked and starving and naked, he topped this list off with his daily burden for the churches. He cared about them with a God-given care. And that is the place that pastors or elders ought to be, the place they should be caring for the flock in that way. Uh, and I'll say for, for me personally, this, last, this whole last year, has been a time where that burden has been stronger than just about any other time in my life and in my ministry, where there's, there's been a, a burden for our church and a burden for, on top of that, a burden for the world, a, a burden for our, our culture. Um, I think this series, as you, you maybe picked up on along the way, it is, it is motivated by that burden. I Man, I, I love you guys. You are in this church. I love you. I, I want you to follow Jesus Christ and his will and his plan for your life so badly, so badly. Um, and that has motivated this, this series. With that said, though, the intent is to preach biblical truth. It's to preach from the Bible and, and, and also some application into our context, the things that are unique to us, but without veering a ton into matters of secondary opinion. We, we want to keep those things light. We're, we are a church. We are a church. Our marching orders come from God. They come from his word. And at the end of the day, like we can just get it wrong in our opinions and our politics and our cultural commentary. We, we can get all those things wrong so easily. Um, that is why I think it's such a protection from God that we are not Ultimately, we are not activists. We are not promoting anything aside from the gospel of Jesus Christ. Till the day I die, I want to be promoting the gospel of Jesus Christ and living with kingdom values. So um, this time last year, I was coming back for my first ever sabbatical. And I'll say probably the most important thing for me that God pressed on my heart so hard was through a, a study uh, while I was gone in Indonesia of First and Second Timothy and Titus um, and uh, Acts 20, as well as a few other passages, basically looking at every passage in, in the scriptures that talks to what, okay, what does a what does a pastor or elder do? Like what what are you what are you really supposed to do? I knew these passages, but I'd never looked at them in quite this way. Uh, time and time again, pastors are commanded to warn the church and protect the church against false teaching. Just over and over again through these passages, I was struck. Honestly, I was surprised how frequent this theme came up. And I just cannot get away from this burden. I cannot get away from this burden to walk out the, 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 the command, to warn the church against false teaching that, that might seem innocent enough at first, but can be so destructive and leads down a path towards rejecting Jesus as the risen king. That's the ultimate end of false teaching. I can't get away from the burden along with just the sorrow of seeing a number of loved ones 
over the years, and, and I'm not speaking of anyone who's, who's left the church recently, but over the last 17 years of ministry, seeing just a number of loved ones walk away from Jesus as Lord and be swayed and given in to false teaching and seeing that bring just such destruction in their life. <clears throat> About 18 years ago, sitting at High Banks Park, I, around this time of year, actually, uh, uh, just up north on 23, I had uh, something really unusual happen to me, an experience that still to this day is, is quite unusual. I was, I was there uh, praying, um, just spending time with, with, uh, spending time with the Lord. I was a young believer. I hadn't read the scriptures much, honestly. Uh, I'd started to. I was starting to fall in love with them, but I don't think I'd made it past like the first part of Deuteronomy in the Old Testament before losing heart, uh, minus, minus Psalms or some of the Psalms and Proverbs. And I'd, I'd done a chunk of the New Testament. I had been radically saved. I loved the Lord and he was transforming my life, but I was so fresh and, and young and new and naive. And I'm just pouring my heart out to the Lord uh, sitting there on a blanket at Highbanks Park. And, and I felt the Spirit of God compel me to read Isaiah chapter 6. I'd never, I, I don't believe I had ever read the, the book of Isaiah before. I had absolutely no idea what was in Isaiah chapter 6. But I felt this incredibly strong compulsion to open up my Bible and read Isaiah chapter 6. And, and many of you may know what is in Isaiah chapter 6. This is Isaiah's commission. Okay, this is where he has this vision and he enters in to the holy place and he sees the glory of God and he falls down thinking that he's dead. I'm ruined. Woe, woe to me, for I am a man of unclean lips. He thinks that because of his sin and his presence uh, in, in this place where he saw the glory of God, that he was going to die. And God has mercy on him. Uh, he, he spares him. And then he says, whom shall I send who will go for us? Whom shall I send who will go for us? And Isaiah immediately speaks up. He says, here am I, send me. Here am I, send me. He answers the call and he commits himself not only to the Lord, but to the Lord's mission on earth at the time. And I was so moved by this. I mean, just in tears, God, I want this to be me. I want to say yes to this. Lord, here am I, send me. I want to follow you. I want to do whatever you will, whatever you will for the rest of my life. I want to bring the gospel to those who haven't heard the gospel. I want to serve people in the name of Jesus who need to, to know him and see him. But what I had such little understanding of at the time was the setting that God was sending Isaiah into. This was not a setting where he was going to bear tremendous, obvious fruit. It was a setting that was so, so difficult. God was sending him and he, and he told them this. He told Isaiah this straight up. I'm sending you to a hardened people with hardened hearts that will reject this message. And Isaiah paid the ultimate price for his ministry. He paid with his whole life the price of following the call to reach with God's message into a world that was tremendously broken. There is absolutely no way that Isaiah could have fulfilled this mission and, and been true to his commitment when he said, here am I, send me. I want to follow you wherever you lead me, God, without an intense resolve for the Lord to follow God first and, and an intense resolve for the truth of God. Isaiah had a resolution to follow God and somehow, somehow by the grace of God, maintain a soft heart in that to where he wasn't just filled with hatred for all the people that rejected his message day after day and rejected him outright. Somehow by the grace of God, the prophet Isaiah had the resolve to walk this out with a soft heart. And man, over and over again, 
over this last year and over all the, the just sufferings and trials we've had as a culture and as a church over these last few months, uh, over these last many months, it has been just such a, a, a different and difficult time where I think every single one of us has wrestled with things we did not expect to wrestle with a year ago or six months ago. But through this time and time again, God has brought me back to the book of Isaiah and to this particular passage in Isaiah 6. And I'll say for myself, I think he's leading me to have just a greater resolve, a harder nose for God to say, God, you really are, you really are first. I, that, that's my desire for him to be first place in my life and to have a resolve no matter, no matter what, to follow him and to carry out the mission that he's given me, the good works that he's prepared in advance for me to do. And I want that, I pray for that. I want that so badly for our church. That, that we're not a social club. We're not just a place where people feel good, where people belong. We definitely want that. If you don't feel like included and, and, and like you belong here, that is a crime that, that must be fixed. And I hope not, not a single one of you feels that. But that's not the reason why we exist as a church. That's not the reason why we exist. We are the bride of Jesus Christ, called out of the world to do his bidding, to follow him with resolve. And sometimes that doesn't feel all that hard. Sometimes it does feel tremendously difficult and we're up against it. There's, there's an in-season and there's an out-of-season. And in so many ways, this has been, or at least felt like a time that is out of season. But our resolve must be strong for Jesus Christ with our hope ultimately in him, no matter what happens, uh, yet, yet maintaining faith and hope and prayer that there will be coming an in-season where there is a, a fruitfulness and a harvest in our culture, in our world, in our church, as we've seen before in many of the great revivals that God has brought about through, throughout the last 2,000 years. Many of them have come on the heels of uh, great difficulty around the world. And my hope is that this is, this is no different. No matter what happens, um, that, that resolute commitment will only be built by the grace of God, by God in his grace, as we stand firm together on his word in the midst of trial. That's what we're in right now. Wide, widespread cultural trial, unlike any of us have seen in our lifetime in so many different ways. And so because of all those, because of all of those things, I believe that God has led us to this passage in 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 5, where he lays out in advance for us what's going to happen. You know, not all the specifics that we want to see. He certainly doesn't answer all our questions, but he gives us an expectation of what is to come. And I think it's so important for us to understand so that we can remain faithful and live together with kingdom values. And, and those values, they intersect in many, many ways with the world. But there are these areas where they butt up against one another. And sometimes there's tension there and there's difficulty there and we're not quite sure. And my hope and my prayer is that this series leads us to a place of greater confidence, clarity, and what are the kingdom values that God would have us embrace? And how can, we, how can we then live them out to the pleasure and glory of God right now in our lives? If we don't walk away from this with a, just a greater appreciation and love and marvel at how good and awesome God is, and then some real challenges to walk out, I think it would be, uh, it'd be, it'd be quite a shame. So I think all that leads us to this passage. Once again, 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 5 that I hope you've been enjoying and, and appreciating over the last few weeks. Um, let, me, uh, let me read the passage here for us uh, in its entirety, the passage we've been focusing on. And then we're going we're gonna to pick out really just one kind of central thing from the passage tonight. And then we're going to wrap up this series next week. Okay. 
2 Timothy 3. But mark this. There will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness, but denying its power, have nothing to do with such people. Okay, tonight, um, I, I, I'd like to talk about this, this idea. I think if you've been here with us, you understand that there is an expectation that these qualities will increase in the time leading up to Christ's return. Some of us have lived with this expectation that the church is going to bring about the second coming of Christ by evangelizing the whole world in such a way that there's widespread uh, cultural change that submits to Jesus and submits to kingdom values that kind of ushers in his return. Now, there are expectations on what the church will accomplish in the name of Jesus before he returns. That is having a, a gospel presence among every, every ethnic group. But I, I, I think you've seen this is, this is not a, a correct understanding of what is going to lead up to the return of Christ. There will be difficulty, and Jesus tells us there will be a great wandering away. People that will reject the faith, that will be in the church, that will reject Jesus, that will reject Christian doctrine. And so there's an expectation that in the lead up to Christ's return, which may be soon, and it may be in a thousand years, we certainly don't know. But when we read this passage, I think we are seeing these things right now, and we've seen them many other times also uh, in, in uh, the history of civilization after Christ's uh, death and, and resurrection and, and ascension. But I think for us, we're seeing them uniquely increase right now. Uh, anyways, we should, ex- we should expect that. And this, this, uh, this idea that people will increasingly not love what is good. They will not love what is good. We're going to talk about this a little bit tonight, and, and we're going to skip over this idea of being treacherous and rash and conceited uh, to hit on those things next week because there is a, a, a connection here in, in the passage between not loving what is good and what comes after conceited to love pleasure rather than loving God. To not love what is good and to love pleasure rather than not loving good. Uh, to talk about what this means exactly, I, I, I want to talk about first, what is it to what is it to love what is good? What exactly does that mean? I, I think to understand what it is to not love what is good, it helps to start uh, with an understanding of what it is to love what is good. First of all, this phrase was used as kind of a description of an honorary person in Greek and Roman culture. It's used in the New Testament to describe someone who's, who's upright, uh, who's, who's a worthy leader, someone who loves what is good. When the Bible speaks of moral values or goodness, it speaks on what flows from God's very nature, of what comes from God in the way that he is. Love is good. Not because God, you know, had these qualities or values in a basket. And he said, okay, love, uh, we're going to say that's good. And uh, hate, uh, we're going to say that's bad mostly. That is not why love is, is a value and good. Love is good because God is the epitome of love. God in his very nature is loving. And so love is good. Intimacy, in the right context, is good and beautiful and valuable because God, in three persons, is intimate in his very nature. And you can see this in so many different values, biblical values. Now, in addition to these moral values, God has given men and women moral duties that are consistent with his nature, but rooted in his, in his commands. These are things for us to do or, or not to do. 
We know these commands because uh, they've been revealed to us in, in God's word, uh, but also they've been revealed to mankind through nature and through conscience. Do not steal, lie, commit adultery, murder, be generous, tell the truth, remain faithful to your spouse, love your neighbor. These are the moral obligations for all men and all women given to us by God. Moral values and obligations, what is good, it, it, they, they, they find their grounding in God, either by his very nature or by his commands that are also consistent with his nature. To love the way that God is in the things that come from him is to love what is good. To, to love the way he is. To love his qualities, to love his attributes, to love the things that he thinks about and the things that he, by his very nature, promotes. To love the things that he has given us. To love the way that he has done things. That, that is what it is to love what is good. Imagine what would happen with me. Imagine what would happen if a culture increasingly moved its standard of good away from God, away from his commands, away from even the historic intuitions of the human conscience and attempted to build a new moral standard on the foundation of happiness. Maybe does that sound familiar? Does that sound a little bit a little bit familiar? Um, doesn't sound altogether horrific at first glance to build foundations of morality on happiness. We do want to be happy. I, I want you guys to be happy. I want to be happy. It's good to want to be happy and to want others to be happy as well. <clears throat> Sam Harris, who's he's considered one of the four horsemen of the new atheist movement that's kind of on life support at best now. Um, and he might be the most prominent intellectual who's promoted this, this shift, this shift in moral grounding and tried to make a, really make a philosophical case for it. Stick with me here for a minute if you're not typically into this kind of thing. So Harris, Sam Harris draws a straight line between goodness and human flourishing. He says moral goodness is human flourishing. The two are the same. This is the definition of moral, good, of moral goodness. The definition is human flourishing, which is not consistent with any dictionary definition you might find. Whatever produces human flourishing or happiness for the greatest number of people is good. This, this is the grounding of Sam Harris's morality. Um, now, there are a few problems with this. There's quite a few problems with this, actually. Maybe none quite so obvious as the fact that it's very easy to imagine a world where the flourishing of the majority comes at the expense of the minority. It's very, very easy to imagine that kind of world. Some of the most horrific evils in recent human history, eugenics, various racially motivated genocides have been justified from a philosophical foundation that's that's not altogether different, that's quite similar to what Harris would promote, even though he would reject those actions, of course. Here's, here's the bottom line. There's just no way to do it. There's no way to do it. There is no way to separate morality from the objective standard of God's character and his commands without bringing tremendous destruction upon ourselves, upon our society, upon our children. There's no way to do it. It's been tried so many times, and it's being tried by many right now to ground moral goodness in something other than than God's objective standards. I think what makes this so relevant for us right now 
is that the idea, whatever makes you happy is good. Whatever makes you happy is right. Whatever makes you happy is okay. It's the greatest good. This has become our dominant cultural morality. This is what so many people believe. I hear it time after time after time. Uh, this is kind of the de facto philosophy that uh, young, young and old have in our culture, in our world, and, and around the world. Uh, cultures are more connected now than they ever have been before. Now, throughout this series, uh, we've used the phrase moralistic therapeutic deism or, or MTD to describe kind of this movement into a, a new cultural religion and its ideas. Quoting, this is a quote here from a, a Gospel Coalition article about moralistic therapeutic deism. Within MTD religion, God is a cosmic therapist and divine butler, ready to help out when needed. He exists, but really isn't a part of our lives. We are supposed to be good people, but each person must find what's right for him or her. Good people will go to heaven and we shouldn't be stifled by organized religion where somebody tells us what we should do or what we should believe. I should do what makes me happy and others should do what makes them happy. This is our dominant cultural ideology. Here's the catch though. As we idolize human flourishing as the, as the highest good, we inevitably move away from human flourishing. Not loving the good goes hand in hand with the love of pleasure we see in this passage. Um, the, and the word pleasure here, the lovers of pleasure, it, it comes from the root word for hedonism. It's really getting more so at sexual pleasure, a love for sexual pleasure than anything else. And I think this for us in our culture, it's where we see this self-love, happiness is goodness ideology play out most clearly. If happiness equals morality, then why should why should my desired sexual expression be limited by any standard outside of myself? The answer is that it really shouldn't. It really shouldn't according to this ideology. And people have figured this out, I think, over the years. What do we see, though? What do we see when we survey the culture, when we survey the world, even the places from which many of us have come? What do we see as, as the fruit from this sexual liberation movement. I, I hope, I really hope that as, as you survey the world and the culture, as I do, that we, that we see some of the same things together as the fruit of this movement, divorce, broken families, millions, millions of men completely pacified by pornography and disengaged from the, the world and the relationships around them excessive sexual gratification, but also deep loneliness, a, a deep and abiding loneliness, anxiety, depression, difficulty, like we haven't seen in quite some time, as well as just countless young men and, and women missing out uh, on the blessing of covenantal marriage. These are some of the th- these are some of the, the things that I see as I survey the culture and the world and look at what fruit has this ideology brought. This idea of human flourishing and happiness is the highest good. Even the definition of goodness itself has brought about so much suffering and difficulty in our world. Isaiah 5.20 says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil and substitute darkness for light and light for darkness, who substitute bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Calling evil good and good evil. And this is absolutely not unique to us. I mean, this is just part of the human condition. People have been doing this for a really, really long time. I think what is unique for us is this sense that we're seeing an apparent cultural shift and it's, honestly, to my surprise, this really, this really has surprised me 
we're seeing this shift influence so many and so, so many in the church even. We're living in a world right now where there is at least, at least an appearance. This might not really be the case, but there's at least an appearance of widespread outrage towards the Salvation Army because of their biblical sexual ethic. And if you don't follow these kind of things, I apologize for, for even bringing it up to you. Um, I hope this brings sorrow and, and a resolute desire to pray for our city and our world um, and to live out kingdom values as opposed to frustration and anger. Um, shouldn't ultimately bring those things. But the Salvation Army, man, it has been one of the greatest forces of good, uh, helping the most vulnerable people on the planet all over the world for the last 150 years. And, and there are many with so little understanding um, that believe this, this is an evil institution, that the Salvation Army is an evil institution that must be, that must be opposed by every good upstanding citizen. This is some of the cultural narrative that we've seen over the last year, uh, I think in increasing measure. And it's, it's all over the place. We, we're living in a world that increasingly calls good evil and calls evil good. And I'll, I'll say a lot of this, guys, a lot of this surrounds human sexuality. Some... There, there has been some criticism. I'm not necessarily saying in our church, but I've, I've just heard this criticism so many times over the years. Goodness, why does the church focus so much on sex? Why does, why does God care so much? You know, the famous comedian Bill Maher, I've, I've heard him say on a number of occasions, why does, this, why does this supposed God care so much what people do with their clothes off? And... I want to say, I would personally rather not talk about these things. I, I really would rather not. But we do have to talk about what the Word of God talks about. Okay, that, first and foremost, we've got to talk about what the Word of God talks about and be led by the, the content of the New Testament. And there's much conversation in there because we are naturally given towards immorality and towards sexual immorality this is kind of, this is our path of least, least resistance. There's just a lot in there. And then also, we live in a world where the church is being pressed in certain ways. And these are oftentimes the things we've got to address. The, the church is being pressed on our sexual ethic right now. Probably, over, the, over the last five to 10 years, probably more so than anything else. We're really, really being pressed there. And so just like the New Testament letters, many of them were occasional letters, like they weren't just a systematic theology that was laid out, but they were written to churches and groups of people in particular places that were struggling with certain things. There were certain doctrines and ideas that were really hurting people that the Spirit of God addressed for those people through the Apostle Paul or, or whatever apostle or disciple was writing the letter. And in the same way today, we are pressed up against certain cultural ideals that cut against uh, biblical ethics and also cut against human flourishing. It is so arrogant and short-sighted to say, God, why does God care so much about what people do with their clothes off? I would venture to guess that every single one of us here have suffered in our lives because of some, someone else's or our own sexual immorality. These things don't just happen in a vacuum. When we step outside of God's design and plan and his heart for real, actual human flourishing as we follow him and worship him, real pain happens. Real harm happens. Real families break apart. Real children grow up without a, without a dad in their home. This is a real thing that happens as people, whether they're Christian or, or, or not Christian, reject God's standard for human life and for human flourishing and human sexuality. It matters so much, and it really does matter what we believe, whether we will stand firm on what the Bible clearly teaches and preaches or not. It really, really does matter for our own life and for the sake of those around us, for the sake of our children. 
we have got to stand firm in believing and following the word of God. Okay, um, I've got just several kind of points on this, this, these ideas from this passage uh, that I'd like to, to lay out here that I think are important for us to understand. Number one, this increasing uh, lack of love for the good and increasing love of pleasure that denies God. We've got to know this. It does not take God by surprise. It does not surprise him in any way. Remember that he described the increase of these things leading up to his return. It doesn't surprise God. And with that said, cultural sins are not, they are not by nature a a direct reflection of the church's faithfulness towards God. I I think we've said this a couple times throughout the series, but I, I do think it's important for us to recognize we will not bring about a utopian society. Our, our worldview should, our biblical worldview should, should help us to know this with confidence. It is not going to happen. And so many would, would point to every and any flaw in the culture as a direct failure for the church to accomplish its mission on earth. Okay, and that sometimes is the case. There are sometimes, and there certainly have been, horrific evils in the world that have come as a result or been allowed as a result by a failure of Christians or a failure of the church. But uh, we, we can't draw a straight line to say that, okay, what God said was going to happen is in its very nature a reaction uh, to the church's failure to accomplish its mission on earth. And I think it's very, very important for us to realize and recognize this so that, so that we don't lose heart. Because this is just like the prophet Isaiah. He needed this resolve to stand for God and to stand for truth in a world that was not going to immediately receive his message. He needed that resolve. So too do we need that resolve. We need that. We've got to know that the message of the gospel, it will be accepted by many and we need to pray in faith in hope for tremendous revival in our nation and in our world. Yet we have to know that ultimately people will not, uh, there's not going to be widespread cultural transformation where we see the kingdom of God come in full before Jesus comes back and makes that happen. We've got to try. We've got to try. We've got to live out kingdom values and preach the gospel until our dying breath. But we've got to know that ultimately it is Jesus Christ who's going to bring about the transformation that we so strongly desire and that the world longs for even as it rejects Jesus as Savior. Number number two here. We've got to embrace this kingdom value to love what is good. We cannot be reluctant, apologetic, or ashamed to love, to love the clear teaching of God's word. Now, I'm not saying that you need to go into your workplace cafeteria tomorrow and, you know, read out loud, sinners in the hands of an angry God or something to that effect. I'm not saying that you always have to promote every single biblical doctrine in every setting. There is sometimes wisdom in restraint. But internally, I'm I'm really speaking internally, we've got to love what is good and what the Bible teaches and not be ashamed of it and not feel guilty about it. I think this this is a temptation for us right now. And I I speak from my own experience also. I think this is a temptation for us. And, And there are some specific doctrines that are really being pressed on right now. Number one, I mean, I think without a doubt, the biblical prohibition on same-sex same sex sexual relationships, as, as well as any type of sexual intimacy outside of lifelong covenantal marriage between one man and one woman. This is going to take all kinds of different forms over the course of the rest of our lives if Jesus doesn't come back really soon. Uh, but this is pressed right now, this doctrine. 
Um, Number two, I think the biblical teaching on gender and just what is a man, what is a woman, what are the differences between the two in marriage and even in the church. Number three, the judgment of God, God's judgment towards sin and his ultimate judgment uh, for those who are not in Christ. And, And number four, the exclusive nature of Jesus' atoning work on the cross. In other words, it is only through Jesus and what he's done that one can be made right with God. These, these are four doctrines, among others, that I think are really being pressed on right now by the culture. Are there any of these doctrines? This is a question for you to consider. Are there any of these doctrines or any other clear biblical teaching that you find yourself just reluctantly accepting? Perhaps you believe, but you feel uh, ashamed to say it, or you feel guilty about the implications of this belief, the, 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 the weight that it would impose on someone else who came to Christ. I do think there's a real temptation for us in in this area. And I want to encourage you all who are here, who are listening. I really want to encourage you to this end. Don't give in internally. Do not give in internally to what the world says is good or evil. Don't, Don't give in. Now, again, there is significant overlap. There's significant overlap between worldly values and kingdom values. But what I'm talking about here is that the values where the the world is pressing up against the kingdom of God. And I cannot tell you how many individuals uh, that, that I've seen hold reluctantly to a kingdom value, not embracing it, not ultimately believing it's good, uh, how, how many people I've seen eventually find some justification for abandoning that kingdom value. It just breaks my heart so much when I think of the friends and, and loved ones that I've seen go down that path. Reject biblical understanding of gender as evil. Reject biblical understanding of sexuality as evil. Reject biblical understanding of God's judgment towards sin as evil and ultimately reject a biblical understanding of Jesus Christ, his identity, and his atoning work for us on the cross as not only incorrect, but as, an, as, as evil, as an evil doctrine. I'm not saying that one follows the other necessarily, but there is, I believe, a progression here um, that along with cultural pressure causes these beliefs to just often fall together like dominoes. Okay, so how can we respond? How can we respond to this and love what is good and and love God's word and love what he teaches and love even the things that the culture is pressing against? I think first off, we have got to know him. We've got to know him. We've got to know the Lord and know his heart and spend time with him and sit before him and sit at his feet like Mary and have our lives changed and transformed in his holiness and grace. If we know him and know his heart through the word, through prayer, through the Holy Spirit ministering to us, through the church and the ministry that we receive just as a member of the body of Christ, we start to to learn to love what is good and hate what is evil as God would have us. We've got to know him. God has designed us to know him and he will speak to us. The second thing I'd say here is if there, and and we'll end here in just a second, if there is a clear scriptural teaching that you're just having a hard time with, emotionally or intellectually, you just, you have a hard time accepting or embracing, I really want to encourage you to wrestle with that with the Lord in all humility, in all humility, wrestle with it with God in prayer. I'm not saying get all your answers just privately with God in prayer. You need to bring this before trusted counselors who know the word, who are committed to the word. But wrestle with this truly and genuinely before God. There's this prayer from Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. You can go before God 
and earnestly pray that. God, show me where my heart, where my emotions, where my mind is coming up against the scriptures. Lord, I, I, I want to understand, but I will submit it to you. Your will, not mine, be done. Show me, Lord. Lead me. Lead me in the truth and what I believe in what I do, and then ultimately even in how I feel. I do believe God will be faithful to that when we approach him in all humility, not, um, not preaching, not preaching to God. He does not need our preaching. He does not need anything from us. He wants our repentance and our humility before him, and he will lead us and lift us up when we were bowed down. Um, and the very last thing I want to say here to, to just embrace this idea of really loving what is good and what the scriptures teach is walk it out. Take a step of action. Is there a biblical command that you have been just hesitant? You, you, you've just not really obeyed it. You've not really walked out. You've not really followed it. And the spirit has pressed you on it, but you've been hesitant. You've been reluctant and, and perhaps disobedient. Walk it out. Live it out. You might have difficulty in your life as you seek to do so. But I do think that you will see the fruit in your own life, in your own heart, in your own relationships. And more so than anything else, in this ultimate relationship between you and Jesus Christ that he has initiated with you. I believe you will see the fruit of the, 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 the good that comes from God and his commands. As you step them out, as you take a risk, as you say, no matter what the cost, I'm gonna take this step of obedience to Christ. In a, in a clear, direct command that he's given me, or perhaps in a good work I believe he's prepared for me in advance to do. And something the spirit is just urging me to do. As we walk out his commands with a humble heart, I think we will we will taste and see that the Lord is good in this life. I know all the good things, all the good things that I've experienced in my life have come from my Lord, Jesus Christ. I've tried so many times to destroy myself with my own thoughts, with my own ideas, with my own actions, time after time. I've just tried so hard. But God, has, he's led me and he's given me just good thing after good thing to where I, I, I believe with all my heart that God in his nature and his commands, he is so, so good. He is so, so good. Let's, let's believe that together, that God is indeed good and awesome and righteous. Amen? Amen. Lord, I, I pray that you would, you would help us to leave this place and encourage one another and be encouraged by this message in your word to be in awe of you and your goodness, Lord. Help us to walk out your values. Lord, help us to walk out what's true in a world that that is struggling and suffering in so many ways. Lord, I pray that we would love our neighbor, that we would do good to all men, that we would be gentle and kind, Lord, and ultimately that we would be like you. Lord, help us to walk in that freedom this week. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Hey, we'll see you guys next week.